0: this week on um, three questions with Corey Kareem
1: I've had some colleagues um during like holiday parties and stuff right when you're just dressed up a little bit more um and they've come to me and said like oh you're so pretty for a black girl're right? like okay like wow. just- they
0: actually said that black-wise, 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 black-wise. Yeah, yeah. Never go back. Yeah, yeah. Go- now, before we get started with this beautiful conversation, please help a brother out and click on that follow button on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Three Questions with Corey Kareem, the podcast where we sit down with some amazing people who are doing some amazing things. And that's right, you guessed it. We asked them three questions. Sometimes four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I know, I know, I know. I read the comments, but rather than talk about my guests, their wins or their successes, we tend to talk about their failures. Uh, More specifically, the lessons that they learn from those individual experiences. So with that being said, my guest today is a true powerhouse in her field. She's a global talent acquisition operations leader. Who possesses a wealth of expertise in various areas from candidate and manager hiring, where she has an exceptional ability to identify and select top talent, meaning she's really good at finding and hiring winners to process improvement and simplification, platform integration and enhancement, education and training and data intelligence across global markets. So she truly encompasses the full spectrum of talent acquisition. But that's not all. My guest also has a passionate or is a passionate advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, so DEI. She firmly believes in creating an inclusive workplace where everyone has equal opportunity to thrive and succeed. Her commitment to DEI has earned her the title of DEI champion, and she continues to make a significant impact in this area currently serving as the VP of Global Talent Acquisitions Operations at Edelman one of the world's most renowned PR agencies my guest today is also committed to promoting positive change within the talent acquisition industry that will transform the way organizations attract and retain top talent so without further ado Flora Yeka welcome to the podcast
1: thank you thank you what an introduction i feel so it makes me feel more accomplished than I feel
0: I am. <laughs> well, you know what is, is a funny thing? This is a common question I ask on my guests. When you hear somebody uh, rhyme back all your accomplishments, all your accolades, what feeling do you have? Do you have the feeling of, is he talking about me? Or are you more like, yeah, that's right. I did all that.
1: Well it's it's one it's kind of a combination of both. It's kind of a make I want to turn around like who me? <laughs> like who are you talking to? And then a yeah. part of it is like yeah, I did that. I think that, <laughs> yeah, I did that part is more so um in relation to like the age, right? Cuz I'm I'm only 36. So yeah. for me it's like wow, like I feel yeah. like I've I've lived a life already and I still have, you know, God willing, 30 years left in the tank. So it's yeah. like I I have a lot to live up to once I reach my
0: 50s. That's amazing. 36 years old. So I I feel like a a top 40 under 40 list. uh, You might be hitting that pretty soon, (laughs) if not already. Um, So Flora, I know I gave you a bit of an intro there, but for my listeners, for my audience, who is Flora and what inspired you to get into this specific field or industry? Where did that come from?
1: Yeah. Um, so Flora is a, uh, athlete, you know, sports lover. Um, you know, our, our household is a Chelsea household. Okay. <laughs> it can be controversial Depend mm-hmm. when, when yeah. you're, when you're, uh, when you're a football fan there, but, um, yeah, that's kind of, you know, my, my primary, um, piece first Flora is a mother, mm-hmm. um, you know, lover of animals. Um, I'd like to think I'm, uh, A protector of people who don't have voices. Gotcha. Um, and then what got me into talent acquisition is, is really my, my mentor, Melanie. So her and I are still very close friends. Mm -hmm. And after school, I went in, had a conversation with her. You know, it was the usual, I want to get into admit because what do you do after after school? You know, when you're, when you're young and experienced, there isn't a lot of job options out there really. Mm -hmm. And just through conversation and we were talking about. The lack of diversity in the corporate space and, you know, how I even in sales that I was doing before, like retail sales, you know, I love seeing diverse talent and really just making sure that the diverse talent can do as best as they can um in the space. And then she said, well, what about recruiting? And I was like, I don't even know what that is. Like, is that you know, is that just agency? Cause I didn't really realize that there was in-house recruiting. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, I got into it, fell in love with it. Um, It was a great opportunity to kind of see the direct impact that someone can have in other people's lives and particularly people's lives who look like me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just where I just fell, fell in love with it and just decided to stay in it. And as the years went on and kind of evolved, um, the more involved I wanted to be internally in like DEI case, DEI work. And, you know, how do we, how do we kind of shift what DEI and what people of color, um, I always say historically excluded communities, right. Cause for mm-hmm. me, it's not, you know, it's not racialized, marginalized. We're not BIPOC. We have been historically excluded from the community, um, yeah so just kind of getting getting involved uh getting involved in that so for me, it's you know my my talent acquisition work pays the bills, but mm. the d e i element of it is, is what fills my heart
0: i love that i love that response so flora, let's get right into this mm. um as I mentioned in my opening um we start our conversations by talking about a very difficult moment, a challenging period or a failure that you've experienced and overcame. So tell me about the most difficult moment you've experienced or a challenging period in your life, whether it be from a professional standpoint or a personal standpoint, what happened, how'd you get through it, and most importantly, what'd you learn from it?
1: Yeah, um, I would definitely say there's probably like a five-year period mm-hmm. where I was like a functioning, depressed professional where, you know, everyone just knows me as like the smiley person, this, and then I would, you know, I would close my laptop after meetings or just walk away and then just be like crying in the bathroom and then fixing myself up and kind of getting, getting back in and putting that corporate work mask on. Mm. Um And I think some of the, some of the, the, the triggers, is in one of my past employers, I I felt like I was in a position where it was a bait and switch. Mm. And while working there, I experienced just not like just I I don't even want to say like clumsy racist comments, but just like just comments that were not right. Where I had you know the the EA of a company I was working with refer to my skin as like puke she was talking to her daughter she was talking about her daughter how her daughter had gone out she came home and she puked and it was disgusting and then she looked at my skin and was like yeah so it was like this color it was just disgusting and for me it was like you know I looked around the room like is is anyone going to Mm. say anything um and for that period, there's probably, you know, six months of being at that job every day at lunchtime. I would go in my car and cry. I would go in my car and cry and then come back to work, go to my car and cry and come and go back to work. That was extremely, extremely difficult. Um, and then, you know, kind of fast forward, um, you know, in, in, in 2020, when George Ford was senselessly murdered, I had another moment like that where, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, I was working for, for an organization and it just felt like nobody cared. Um, Mm. and that for me was really challenging because I have a young black son Mm. and it was just, you know, the expectation, especially in talent acquisition, right? So I talked to so many people, I'm in conversations with so many hiring managers and to have not any one of them ask me how I'm doing, ask me if I'm okay, ask me if they want to push back the meeting that for me was really challenging. Like my boss at the time was fantastic. She was, you know, she probably, uh yeah, she, she kind of saved me in more ways than, than one. But I, I found that professionally really challenging because mm-hmm. it was like, how do you see me and you don't see that I'm a black woman in the workplace and you see me as, and you see me and, and knowing that I have a black son in the workplace and you just don't care. And then you know, at that point I kind of sorted out who was my actual friend in the professional workplace and who was just a colleague mm. and I acted accordingly. Right. Mm. So it was like the people who I consider colleagues, you got a straight face, straight faced Flora. Mm. Um, You know, I wasn't going to take the conversation beyond anything. I would go into meetings and not ask how their weekend was anything. Um, And then people were like, well, you know, like, what's wrong with your attitude is changing. And I'm like, the world is literally on fire and you're concerned that I, you know, like, so it was just, it was, it was kind of really challenging in that, in that sense. Um, And, you know, it took me a while to decide to leave that workplace um for, for where I am now, but that was, yeah, it was probably like a good year of just being really, really triggered in the workplace In combination with um, you know, I have I have black nephews and they were experiencing racism in Canada and people were acting as if racism in Canada was not a thing and compared to the US, right? So Mm -hmm. having to work during that period, um, and having black men and kids in my family during that period, but still having to show up in the workplace with a smile on my face because nobody at work cared that the black world was falling apart. Um, that was very, very challenging. I ended up, um, leaving the workplace and taking a couple of months off of work just to really recenter, mm-hmm. rebalance myself and really figure out what my priorities are. Um, and at the end of taking those couple of months off, I decided to shift and create extreme boundaries in my life. I left that workplace, started in, you know, if I was like with me going back into a workplace that doesn't care. Um, yeah, long-winded answer, but <laughs> that kind of covered the you know the the last no, couple of, of years. There, it was it was just yeah, five years of challenge.
0: Yeah. So, what do you say? A couple like follow ups to that because you hit on a lot of key points, and you even took me down memory lane and uh, with certain organizations as well. So, what do you say? The one follow up is what do you say to people being like? Why should I really care or be that invested? Because I can, like, if you trans, if you fast forward to today, there's obviously a lot going on where two specific com- communities mm-hmm. are are feeling attacked right now, and we don't belong to these two communities right now, but we can relate on a lot of levels. So, why should people that are not being personally impacted, in your opinion? why should they really reach out and and actually show some level of caring like why is that important because
1: because we're human i think it's very important be, you know what's mm. the what's the point of having diversity in the workplace or diversity in the cities that you live if the pain that other people are feeling you aren't able to feel yourself and just be compassionate right it's for me it's um Mm-hmm. It's always just shocking to see when you know people are um, you know people and organizations are very passionate and compassionate when it comes to a particular community, but then don't care about other communities right mm-hmm. when almost the identical thing is kind of happening um but I think for me it's 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 just I think we're in a space where we're just dehumanizing so many groups of people uh, that just compassion is just lacking now. And I'm not understanding what is happening in the world that compassion is, is lacking, but you know, I don't have to be, I don't have to be Ukrainian for my heart to hurt for the Ukrainian people. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I don't have to be mm-hmm. Somali or Sudanese for my heart to hurt for these people? I mean, I am Congolese, so my heart hurts for what go- what's going on with my people now um, or has been continuously going on for my people now. Right. But it's, yeah, it's probably one of those questions that, you know, yeah. I'll probably be in my deathbed yeah. still wondering, honestly.
0: Right. And the follow-up to that is it's it's interesting that you, you made a distinction between racism mm-hmm. in Canada versus the U.S., how a lot of Canadians feel like It's not that they say that racism doesn't exist here, but we're like, I like to, I like to think in my POV, Canadians feel like Mm -hmm. we're so much better than them. And in a lot of cases we are, but it's just like, Mm -hmm. Oh, that doesn't happen here, but you're like, no, it does. It might show up different, but it does happen here. So from your POV, like Mm -hmm. what, from your experience, what does racism look like in Canada versus some of the? explicit racism that we've we, we've seen in the u.s on like television yeah and i mean so on from so
1: from personal experience for me it's it's the being told to be thankful right it's like you know mm. be thankful that you you know be thankful that you're here be thankful that um you know, that, that Canada has been able to provide you and, you know, people who look like you with some sort of like safe haven and, and stuff like that, right? I think that, um, can be very damaging in a sense, because then you're erasing all of the mm-hmm. challenges that people are going through, right? Where it's like all of this can be happening to you on a daily basis, mm-hmm. but you live in Canada, so be thankful. Um, you know, and if I think back, you know, with, with just my family members, right? So my, People talk about how incidences with cops doesn't happen a lot in Canada, which, sure, statistically speaking, it may not. However, if I think about my experience in my family, I feel it directly. So my my nephew in Calgary, he was leaving school. He was in high school. It takes him two buses to get home. He got off the one bus and waited at the bus stop less than two minutes to wait for his transfer bus. And this white woman had cops with her, and said that he stole her phone. Now, how from the time that he got off mm. off a bus, stood there waiting for his next bus, would he have time to have you know stolen a phone? They checked his bag right on the spot, he said, "You know, check me, I don't have a phone, and they still took him to the police station right and right Um, that for me is kind of where his life started spiraling right so he he was an athlete he wanted to play soccer professionally scouts were looking at him his grades were great and now he's gotten in more trouble with the police because he's at that stage of why bother right like he was the definition of black Mm -hmm. excellence in a sense and Mm -hmm. some bs still happened to him right and and for me Dire, uh, you know, a few years ago, it. um, you know, I, I was running late for work. My car wasn't working. So I was going to take an Uber to bring my son to school. And me and my son got kicked out of the Uber because the Uber didn't want to have a black driver. And this is in Toronto, right? Like the most diverse place mm. to be. And I was stunned. Like I don't.
0: So the Uber driver didn't want to have a, yeah. a, a black passengers or. So uh, I came
1: in I came in the thing really? I said, "Oh hey, by the way, Lakeshore is busy. It might be easier to, you know, go around this way." And then, you know, he yeah. he started yelling and talking about how, you know, I'm being a difficult driver and that's why he doesn't like having black passengers and just to get out of his get out of his uh get out of his car yeah. using the n-word and I was like, "I don't even understand what just happened." <laughs> right? Like just stopped. Oh wow. You know, even fast forward mm. to this past summer, you know, I I a couple of years ago, I gifted myself, you know, a fairly nice car. I'm getting out of my car and this like older man on a bicycle called me the N-word. Literally, I was in the middle of a DEI meeting at work, getting out of my car on the phone in that meeting and being called the N-word, right? So for me, it's like it just. It just happens all the time, right? And, and same Mm. thing when I'm looking to, to get an apartment, I have to bring a friend of mine who is part white to the apartment with me to go see it just to be like, Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, Mm -hmm. you know, a good member of society kind of thing, right? So it shows up in, in, in different kinds of ways. Um, you know, and, you know, all sorts of other things, right? Of, you know, depending on, um, You know, where, where my office is right now, it's in Yorkville. So a fairly, you know, kind of high high end, I guess, uh, downtown Mm -hmm. neighborhood. And I don't even feel comfortable take going into some of the stores that are in that area, right? So even on a daily basis going to work, Mm -hmm. I just feel uncomfortable because my lunch hour, I can't just go into the Prada or the Louis Vuitton store because I've gotten looks and it's just, I just don't have the patience to deal with that.
0: Right. So the microaggressions, right? That's yeah. the common theme that I'm hearing here. And I think pretty much any black folk that's been in, in spaces where there's not a lot of us. The thing with microaggressions, there's, mm-hmm. it can be so subtle. Um, and some of them have like this delayed effect on people. Like in the moment, you might not recognize it. And then you'll have a second, like, wait, hold on mm-hmm. a second. What does she mean by that? <laughs> um, cause I know I've experienced that a few times, you know, me personally, uh, when I used to live in the US, what I used to get a lot, and I don't know if it was necessarily like as in uh, they meant it in a negative way. Maybe they were trying to relate to me, but they had, I had some of my supervisors at the time always like after work hours just want to like talk to me about hip hop. And just whenever they saw me, they'd be like, yo, what up? Corey, what
1: they, up? They, man? I voted for Obama. My man. <laughs>
0: <He's> a That's a music <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, and it was, it was funny. So like, like, I liked it, but at the same point, I'm like, yo, you just don't always have to yeah. like talk to me like that. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, it was, it was interesting. So that's like one that's like, it's not so obvious. Cause they could just be, you know, pure mm-hmm. hip hop heads, but at the same time, I felt like it was a little over the top. And then there was, I had a situation where I like to refer to it where, it was the this is going to sound weird it was like the moment i realized i was different now obviously i knew i was different but it was like this very surreal moment that happened in real time so my first corporate job out of college in new york i was working for a british ad sales firm and you know i used to work the phones and i used to call international markets and um and local markets and one of the local markets i used to call on was like the South, like Louisiana, Texas, all of that good old boys club. And I remember one time I was, you know, just starting here. I was struggling a bit. My superiors pulled me in and I'm like, Corey, man, you're working hard. You're doing all the right things. We just don't figure it out. But we think they like, we think it You might it might sound too urban over the phone. We think that might be it. That's what they said to me like honestly and transparently. That's what they said. They brought me into a room and I was like, all right, they didn't really tell me what to do. So as a 24 year old trying to find his way, you know, I'm working on wall street, you know, you know, achieving and stuff. You Know what I did? I, I put on a Southern accent. I would call that super yeah. code switching. I don't know what you want to call that, but I did that. And the sad part about it Flora. It's two weeks after putting on a Southern accent. Wow. I started to close some deals. So that really took my mind for a loop. And that was a moment that I realized that I'm going to have to navigate this space differently. Because up until that point, I don't think no one explicitly had a conversation with me about how to climb the ranks or navigate the corporate world as a black man. Because I think that's a very specific conversation that's, that requires someone that's been there, done that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that because in, in the workplace, what I've gotten and continue to get, unfortunately, is almost the opposite where folks would talk to me on the phone and then be surprised when they mm-hmm. see me that, mm, that, that, that I'm a, a black woman. And sometimes you can like, you can see it very quickly. There's like that like microsecond where they see it. And then they're kind of like, Oh, yeah, like oh, that. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah i got that too well, well my name is corey roberts right that's my government first and last career is my middle name so i I literally had a client you know being on the ad sales side of the business and we kind of had a joke about it because we were both visible minorities she was asian i'm black obviously and she when she saw me she, she had a chuckle she's like oh my god i was expecting a white guy corey Corey Roberts, come on. I was like, well, your name is Peggy. Well, I was expecting an older white lady. So I was like, I guess we're even, <laughs> I mean, you're a young Asian girl. So we kind of had a, a chuckle about it. Um, but yeah, microaggression, I, you know, that one is, 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 is so interesting. I think it's the most pervasive in Canadian culture. And I'll, I'll give you one last one that happened. I was working for a startup, um, here in Toronto. And I was in between meetings. So I used to go from like business to business I'd be on the road a lot. And I was just killing time in between meetings. So I was in like a parking lot, just killing time. And this lady drives up and parks next to me. And she ends up hitting my car, not hard, but like taps it as she was parking. And then she looks at me and says to me, you should learn how to park better. Mm-hmm. But like my car is parked. You're you're the one that's moving. I'm stationary. So, you know, we're kind of getting into it. And out of nowhere, Flora, this lady says to me, Well, maybe you should have stayed in school. So I'm like, hold on a second. How did how did you know nothing about me? Um, and at this point I graduated from college with a 3.5 GPA, blah, blah, blah. I'm working like so like I'm like, where does this come from? You know what I'm saying? And it it just again, it was just another reminder that I'm going to have to learn how to, you know, uh deal with these type of things, these type of occurrences, situations and not let it mm-hmm. take away from me, yeah. which is extremely difficult and yeah. taxing. Well, as that's probably, probably one of the,
1: the biggest differences to with the U.S. and it might be, you know. Not controversial to say, but I know I've had some discussions with folks in my personal life about it where I said that at least in some parts of the US, the racism is in your face, right? Like I, I know what parts of the US. Right. It's plain. I'm welcome in what parts of the US. They mm-hmm. will never see my face till the, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's very different and you can kind of feel right. it going in, but I find in Canada, you, you only realize once you're halfway through a situation or after. And I think that has a lot of damage to your mental health because you're kind of, you know, you're starting off your day, mm-hmm. hoping for the best. And then you're in a situation and you look around and you're like, oh, okay. And then you're, you you know, you're, you're doing this mental gymnastics to try to, to, to shimmy, yeah. to shimmy <laughs> out of it while being gaslit yes. by Canadians. Yeah. That, oh, but it's not that bad mm-hmm. here. Right, so then you're kind of in this like thing of like, yeah. okay, well, it maybe it wasn't racism because it's not like a police was in police was involved with a gun or this or that, right? But it still has uh, right. negative impacts on 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 one's kind of health and mental health. So it's yeah, it's not challenging to navigate here.
0: For sure, it, you know it's interesting. You use the the phrase mental gymnastics, and I think when you say that, I also think about how as black folks in the black community, we internalize that. And I've seen, so I I gave you the example of a random Caucasian lady, just randomly butting out that I should have stayed in school and knowing nothing about me. On the flip side, I remember when I was in college. So this was in uh, the U S New York to be specific. It was about 2 PM in the afternoon. I was leaving uh, my aunt's apartment where I used to live at the time. And I was going back to school because, you know, in university, college, your classes are all over the day. Right. And so it's 2 p.m. I'm walking back towards college campus. I live two blocks away from college campus. And this uh, black lady I've never seen before, maybe from that neighborhood, not sure, says to me, young man, shouldn't you be in school? And I was like, <laughs> What makes you think I'm not? And I said, I said, ma'am, I'm in college. And she's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so proud of you, honey. I'm so proud. I am so proud of you. And I was like, so it's just like when you say mental gymnastics, it's like the duality of that is just, you know.
1: Yeah. I always love those. I always love those ladies. (laughs) They always, it's kind of they they the the situation always kind of starts hostile in some some scenarios with some of those old old ladies, and then once yes. they realize that you're a black person who stepped out of the stereotype that society has put on our community, then it, yes, you know, I'm surprised she didn't ask you to you know yeah. to, to have some to the cookout or something right? <laughs> like come over on Sunday. I'll make you a whole meal. <laughs>
0: absolutely um so there's something that you brought up actually and i'm hoping you can expand upon it so um you mentioned about clumsy racism i think you gave an example of an occurrence that happened but you said on a recent linkedin post you wrote the number of clumsy racist comments i've heard through my corporate career would be enough to break Mm -hmm. one's spirit So I know you gave one example how someone was referring to your skin as like the color of her daughter's puke or something like that, which is just mind blowing how someone would do that and not think that there's anything not wrong or off about that. But what are some other examples that of clumsy racism comments that you've Received yeah. from people in the corporate um, environment
1: i think it's you know i've done a number of like panel discussions uh you know internally in the workplace and externally right. but specifically in the workplace um it's getting messages from folks after saying oh you were so articulate and it's like well mm, like
0: my favorite
1: was i not before i don't understand what you're trying to what you're <laughs> trying to what you're trying to say right and um and I've had some other leaders, uh, you know, in that same sentence of saying, "Oh, you're so articulate," saying, um, you know, basically saying that I expressed my opinion and my views in a non-aggressive way, which, you know, to a black woman and you know the whole angry black woman stereotype, it was very much a
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Like, what are what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that I that you're shocked? that I was able to express myself in a non angry black woman type of way. Right. Like it's things like that, that kind of are, um, that can be, that can be complicated, um, in, in Mm -hmm. the workplace. Um, and I get that quite, quite a bit. Um, or even before going into, you know, there's always situations in the workplace where you need to go into a challenging phone call, right? Where you need to have um, a particular mm. type of conversation with someone about work that is either missing, needs to happen, delayed, et cetera. Um, and what always gets me for years, it's the, it's the prep that I get before. Like the, the, I, n- I never asked for prep, but it's the, okay, when you go into that conversation, Try not to be aggressive, right? For me, it's like, well, I didn't hear Mm -hmm. you tell this person that going into the, going into the conversation. Why are you, why are you automatically telling me not to be aggressive going into that conversation, right? Like I've never been aggressive in the workplace a day in my life, but you still feel the need to tell me constantly, don't be aggressive going into a conversation when I do not have a history of aggression in the workplace at all. Right. So I think for me, it's, it's things Mm -hmm. like that, um, you know, outside of the outside of the, um, the, like, Oh, your hair is so long. Right. And it's like, Mm. like, okay. Like, what are you, like, what do you mean? Right. Of like, Oh, your hair is so long. It looks so healthy. And it's kind of like, well, do you have this Mm -hmm. image of black women with, bald heads in the workplace like i'm i'm so confused as to why you felt the need to stop me on my way to a meeting to make that that comment right or even just question whether my hair is real or not because uh, you know at the time it was it was longer than it is now and and healthier right it just doesn't um i think for me it's stuff like that that doesn't quite make sense um you know i've also had happen in the workplace okay. a few times where I've had some colleagues, um, during like holiday parties and stuff, right? When you're just dressed up a little bit more. Um, and they've come to me and said like, Oh, you're so pretty for a black girl. Like, okay. Like, wow. Just- they actually
0: said that. Usually that's coded, yeah. but uh, they actually said that for the me whole, is, the that whole bit is, wow.
1: you know, that yeah, it's, it's just layered in racism. <laughs> because like you could have just said like oh you look great tonight and just left it at that right but then you have to mm-hmm. add on that extra layer right. which is very loud and clear to everyone that you do not think that black women are pretty and you're shocked mm-hmm. that somebody is able to put themselves together to be deemed pretty in your eyes right so um mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's 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 quite um it's quite interesting in, uh, in uh, in that uh, in that sense.
0: Yeah the the aggressive one I I think we both men and women mm-hmm. get that black men and women get that. You know I've gotten the so they might not use the word well in the past they haven't used the word aggressive with me specifically it's been um, mm-hmm. you could come off intimidating that's that's mm-hmm. what I've gotten before um which is crazy to me because i've never been 100% at work like intense maybe 50 and so when you get that and you're at not even like half it's just like you know and kind of my struggle has always been how do i be my authentic self without yeah. scaring folks <laughs> you know the fact that you have to kind of think like that again goes back to that phrase you use mental gymnastics right we're always kind of doing this dance um and i I, look i'm sure other groups might have to do certain dances because you kind of have the double whammy right you're a woman and a black woman right so there's a lot of dancing for you um and so i i totally understand and i totally get it now moving on to dei right it's a matter that you you champion and so Recently, I would say in the last year, maybe even almost two years at this point, I feel like a lot of companies are retracting on their mm-hmm. DEI initiatives with, uh, either slashing budgets or, you know, DEI executives resigning or getting fired. So Flora, as someone who's, who's very passionate about diversity, equity and inclusion, what's your take on all that? And. What do you believe needs to yeah. happen moving forward? For
1: me, it's, it's not surprising at all. Um, you know, I think the corporate mm. world is very good at the rah-rah in moments and then just quietly retreating. Um, you know, once, once the voices aren't as loud or, you know, the, the pressure isn't, um, there anymore. And particularly during, you know, economic challenges, it's always an opportunity for companies to kind of use the economic challenge as a means of, you know, kind of backpedaling and backtracking. And when layoffs happen, I'd be interested to see the percentages of historically excluded communities that have been kind of shuffled within, within those, those layoffs. Mm. Um, you know, it was, not that I was a pessimist after after George Floyd's uh murder and and what companies were doing, but I think for that time period and even till today, I'm kind of in that, you know, I'll believe it when I see it with companies. Cause, you know, every company came out with a black square, every company came out with a with a statement. You know, we saw an increase of DEI professionals being hired at companies globally. Um, you know, and companies just, you know. Putting black people in their advertisements that they had never done before, right? Or, or kind of utilizing, um, you know, black, black images to sell their product. Um, and, you know, for a lot of us, we saw it for what it was, right? It was just, you know, how can we, how can we maximize revenue? Um, I think now it, it is very disappointing to kind of see companies backtracking on a lot of the promises that they had that they had made, right? Companies were talking about, you know, we're gonna increase diversity by 20% in the company and we're gonna ensure this and we're gonna ensure that. Um, it's just it's just really disappointing because now we're seeing more people of color leaving the workplace. Right. We're seeing kind of more people just mm. deter from even entering the corporate world and just choosing another avenue instead of kind of going into the corporate world, um, you know, whatever industry that that may be. We're seeing a lot of DEI practic- practitioners with open to work signs on their LinkedIn. And then, you know, there's a couple of mm-hmm. profiles that I saw where they're even diversifying the type of work that they can go into. Right. So it's like, I've seen a DEI professional hmm. who is now a recruiter because trying to find a DEI job is more difficult because companies aren't really hiring that or they're layering that with an HR, with an HR job. Um, so it's really, it's, it really is extremely disappointing to see. Um, hmm. am I surprised by it? Absolutely not. Cause that's just how the corporate world works and operates. Um, do I think that it will change in the future? Probably. I think the next time that another, um, kind of world shaking event happens, like another je- death of a, of a George Floyd, which will happen, right. It's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to say, but it will happen. Like the world suddenly didn't become less racist in the last three years. Um, mm-hmm. uh, And then once that happens, then companies again will go back on that DEI train, um, and kind of, yeah, Mm -hmm. and just kind of get, get back into it. So I think as a, as a black person, as a black mother, as a, you know, Mm -hmm. DEI champion in the workplace, um, it's, yeah, it's it's just really, really disappointing, really, really disappointing to see overall. I don't think that there's mm-hmm. any other way to um, to describe it other than, you know, what a lot of these corporations did was really just performative, right? It's, it's let's put mm, performative let's people behavior. of color out front and center and let's make them dance for us to get revenue and, you know... Now that their dance in front is not making us as much revenue as before, now we're gonna put them back in the box that we pulled them out from. That's generally what, uh, that's generally what is kind of happening right now.
0: Right. So, so what do you think needs to happen? Like, if you in, in an ideal world, and I know there is no such thing, but like, you know, from your POV, from your experience, you know, working in this field professionally what do you think needs to happen like what's the what, what's the right way to kind of I think go about it companies
1: this? just need to get real with themselves and their staff and with their and with their consumers right um like if you do not care don't pretend to care and i know that's very difficult but i i mm. that's just what my my hope is is right it's like if this is not something that you really care about then don't pretend for a year that you care about it right um you know you don't have to be the company to speak up you don't have to suddenly you know put you know candy cloths on your on your lotion bottles like bath and body works did <laughs> you know and, and pretend to care about a community that historically is not part of any of their advertising right or part of of, of kind of anything that they're doing um yeah so they need to get real with themselves um, I think there needs to be real kind of discussions around what DEI means and what that strategy really looks like. And not just a band-aid strategy to help appease people who are knocking at their doors for like that six months, one year, whatever period. Like what is the true long-term strategy and the long-term impact of those DEI strategies in your workplace and how it's going to impact the people coming into your workplace? Um, and then people hoping to get promotions and stuff like that in the workplace, right? Um, there's a lot of workplaces right now where at the junior level to mid-level, there's a certain level of diversity. But then once you reach that middle management, upper management, you know, the folks who are the decision makers in the room, that's where diversity really drops. But it's those people in those rooms who are making those big DEI strategy decisions, right? So how can you make those decisions when you don't even have mm-hmm. a diverse, pe- diverse group of people sitting at the table, making those decisions with you, right? Is the equivalent of, um, you know, men sitting at the table, making decisions about women's bodies, right? Like you don't have, you don't mm-hmm. have women at that table with you. Um, yeah. In an ideal scenario, I would love those tables to be dismantled and for diverse groups to be at those tables mm-hmm. to then be able to have the real conversations to actually have real impact in organizations about it. Because I think a lot of organizations are leaning, are leaning on ENGs, right? Like employee network groups as their savior of mm-hmm. what culture and DEI is at the organization. Um, and those ENGs are typically. Run and promoted by those who are not in decision making positions, right? Um, so it's, it's quite, yeah, it's quite difficult. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to necessarily say that let's fire everyone at the top and start fresh, but, um, Mm -hmm. honestly, that from, in my personal opinion, that is the only solution. You have to fire the people or get rid of the people or shift them into some other type of role. And bring people who actually care into, into those, into those rooms. Um, but my faith in the corporate world is very small, <laughs> very small at this point. Um, so I don't know, um, right. and I couldn't tell you of a company that's doing it right. Um, I can tell you companies that are doing it right. wrong, <laughs> but, but there really isn't, um, yeah. an organization right now that I can highlight where I can say, Okay, I think that they, I think that they've like kept their promise and they're not backtracking on it. And yeah,
0: right. And well, so you know, speaking of companies doing that, right? So you're pretty high up at at Edelman, right? So what are you doing, or how are you trying? How are you trying to kind of steer the the ship in the right direction, if you will? Um, given the position that you're in and, and recruitment and talent acquisition, like what are you doing personally? That's, that's, you know, yeah. getting them right um, on Um the So
1: there's a couple of things. So I'm part of the Canadian DEI um, strategy team that's specific to Canada. And one mm-hmm. of the streams that we're working on is attracting talent, not only into the organization, but in our industry in general. So the PR communications, um, et cetera, industry typically does not have a lot of diverse talent within its within its uh, kind of pool of available um talent unfortunately, it is predominantly white, predominantly white women kind of in in this um, in this space. So one of the things that we are doing is we are trying to reach folks in the historically excluded communities who do not know about this industry. Right. So how do we, we're, we're looking at and we're, and we're starting to do it more and more of connecting with folks in those communities to just tell them about this industry and tell them that there is a whole other industry that your schools are not talking to you about that your colleges aren't necessarily talking Mm. to you about because to get into a PR program, um, you really have to know about it, right? It's not like going out of school and it's just business, right? If you don't know what you want to do, you do English business, some type right. of arts, but this and, but getting into a PR program is very specific. So we are trying to target the groups of people who, who are big consumers of a lot of our clients and telling them this is an industry where your voice can be heard, where you can really impact change, where you can help clients tell their stories and just letting them know if, that what they are currently doing in school is a transferable skill into our organization. So for instance, there was a young lady that we met a few mm-hmm. weeks ago um, at a youth conference where her background, um, you know, she's in school for like health. I think it was nursing or something along those lines. And we told her that that educational experience is transferable in our space because we do have an arm of our business that focuses on health. So you can transfer that skill in there, mm. right? And you can you can tell the stories that you want to be able to tell, and still have the same level of impact in there. You can take your psychology, sociology, et cetera, degree, and again transfer that into into our into our space, right? Like you can be a strategist. You can you know be kind of working in, in different areas, or even in finance. Take that finance and come into our space and be part of the finance communications team. Um, And it's surprising how many aha, like light bulbs you can kind of see having those conversations with, with those folks in, in those communities are because the high schools aren't telling them about it. They're, you know, their colleges aren't really telling them that they have other options. If the option that they're currently in is in there. So for me, that's a big that's a big kind of passion, right? Because we realized that through many, many conversations that talking to students who are already in the PR program, like it's not that what's the point, but they're already in the program, <laughs> right? Like yeah, you know, yeah.
0: Right. You're, you're, you're holding a, a candle to the, uh, ex- a exactly, candle to the sun, exactly. essentially. So,
1: so we're really trying to figure out how can we target right. and work with these groups, um, to, give them that avenue into into the into our industry and there's so many of them that in an ideal scenario i would love for once those that gate opens that they just kind of come through um and into the space and then over time and again it's a long-term strategy right because it's not that you know we're expecting results next year of suddenly the industry is you know 10% more diverse. It really is a long-term plan and long-term strategy, right. right? Get them at the beginning and hopefully we've inspired them enough to come into our industry once they're done their, once they're done their education. Um, Another thing too. So I lead vibrant, right. which is a multicultural ENG. And I know I just talked about ENGs and you know, the, the effectiveness of it, but mm-hmm. what our aim was to not just be an ENG that that the corporate world that our leaders can just feel comfortable about of like, Oh, okay, well we have an ENG, Right. And it's how can we, how can we impact not only the people in our ENGS, but the people who outside of the workplace may not have black friends or South Asian friends or right. Because that, that can also, that can also mm-hmm. um, happen. So how can we tell our stories within that workplace. And that was a big focus for me in the last year was just telling our stories. So there was a series that, um, that we created called the, did you know series? And I think we probably have like 25 Mm -hmm. or so stories that we've told to date. And the stories varied, right? It was either telling the story of, um, of an Asian colleague who, looked back on the the height of the Asian hate and how it impacted her grandparents, which then impacted her. You know, we had a colleague talk about what it was like or what it is like being Jamaican in Toronto and seeing the diversification of her neighborhood to, you know, appease the white folks that were moving into her neighborhood and just seeing all of these businesses just being closed down and more kind of white facing businesses being mm-hmm. opened up in her neighborhood. Um, you know, we talked about the Crown Act. Um, you know, we talked about the black women and their hair in the workplace. We talked about the black mortality rate in that, right? And just sharing all of mm-hmm. these stories. Um, and I think that has had a really good positive impact in the workplace because we did receive a lot of messages back from people saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know this. Or wow, like I share this Mm. with my family or I share this with a client because we just, this is not something that we ever knew or talked about. And, you know, people would stop me and say that they had followed discussions about it at the dinner table with, with their family. So we found kind of an avenue of how do we tell the story Of people that they work with, right? Because saying high level stories and high level situations, in my personal opinion, didn't have the same level of impact. It was the same BS every time, right? But once you actually tell the story of someone that you see on a daily basis, then that changes or has the potential to change how you then see that person or that you know, or or that person's community and different things like that. So so that I'm hoping to expand more in twenty twenty four and really dig a little bit deeper and get more people participating in that. Um, I know when we took a, a hiatus um, for part of the summer, people would reach out to me and say, Where are the stories <laughs> like where 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 is it? We wanted mm-hmm. to kind of learn more and and kind of dive dive more into that. Um, so for me, I'd probably say in the last two years, that would probably be one of the the things that I'm the most proud of working where I am now is it's just being able to tell yeah. our stories our way. um, there's no limitations on how you tell a story. There's no limitations on You know, can I tell the story because it's going to hurt someone's feelings? Like for us, that's not even a factor. It's you tell your story the way you want to tell it. And if someone, you know, feels hurt by it, then that's their emotion to deal with. That's not yours. Right. So it's, Mm. uh, it's been really, it's been really great to kind of see that and just really great to see people coming together as well kind of with, with, within that. So um those are some of the little things. And then just on a, on an actual like practical work thing uh, you know, we're working on finalizing our global hiring um or inclusive hiring kind of project. And what does that look like? You know, and, and for me, a lot of the things that I always say in a lot of those work stream meetings is, you know, I understand from a corporate perspective, there's checkboxes that need to be made, but I want to be able to position ourselves as, as inclusive hiring should not just be a checkbox, right? Like you shouldn't go through a list of, okay, you know, was I inclusive in the hiring of this person? Or, you know, can I justify hiring this person through these steps? It's, how about let's not just be assholes, right? Like it's like basic, basic. Mm-hmm. Don't be assholes in your phone screens. Don't be assholes in your interviews. Don't be assholes in how you look at someone's, um, you know, writing sample and different things like that, right? Like just take that bias out and you'd be completely surprised at what you kind of see, right? So it's like, for me, it's more so educating our people internally on not being assholes during the interview process <laughs> versus... The make sure you have a woman in the interview process or make sure you have a black person in the interview process or make sure this or make sure that, right? For me, it kind of goes beyond that because I don't want to have, um, you know, the white individuals in the workplace feel like this is what they have to do in terms of hiring, right? It's, and, and not to speak for, you know, the entire black community, but from personal experience, there are some jobs that I haven't gotten where, I'm okay with it, like I didn't feel like there was where my race had mm-hmm. something to do with it, and then there are some jobs where I hundred percent felt that I was the black check mark thrown into that candidate thrown into that candidate pool, right, and it's I want to eliminate that feeling from the recruitment process overall. so it starts with educating, it starts with providing resources, and it starts with just don't be an asshole. <laughs> kind of that's the easiest way right. that I can, right. I can kind of uh, uh put it so we're trying to kind of approach it in different ways right getting historically community uh, historically excluded communities educated on what our industry is and peak interest now getting them through the doors let's not be assholes getting them through the doors and through the interview process and in terms of retention how do we tell their stories internally to humanize them in the workplace um to create that mm-hmm. sense of community, not just within their own communities that they find in the workplace, but within the greater kind of community as well. So I'm just trying to hit it from those three corners. It's a big, it's a big order. Um, and it is very long term, but as long as people are willing and able to participate in that plan and long term strategy, um, I will continue to, to fight as hard as I can fight for it.
0: Right. So I wonder with going through all that, because sometimes I wonder how impactful and you use the word effective some of these DEI initiatives are. Um, and so I wonder from your vantage point, from your experience, what is, what does pushback look like from you internally? Like, do you, do you get pushback and what are some of the comments that are, that are made? when you do get pushback from some of these, you know, ventures or initiatives that you try to put forth to, to better educate folks yeah. and to be more inclusive. Um,
1: I think some of the pushback, you know, probably one of the more kind of notable ones for me has been that the ENG that I'm working with is, is too loud. Excuse me. Or that we mm-hmm. are too, um, we're too active. We're doing the most. I think for me that, You know, even Mm. though that was a comment and not necessarily pushback, but it's kind of in that same sense of, you know, going back to the Canada and the U.S. Mm -hmm. way, right? It's kind of like that comment of like, oh, you guys are doing the most on the surface of it is not racist, right? But there's still Mm -hmm. an undertone to it. Um, or that we are being mm-hmm. kind of too out there and then in turn minimizing the work from the other ENGs and the other groups, right? And, and for me, that's always a conversation of uplifting, uplifting Black women, South Asian women, any, any of these kind of, uh, you know, different, uh, uh, ethnicities and backgrounds is not diminishing the work of other communities or diminishing the value of other communities, right? Um, And I will always and, and will forever say, once you uplift a Black woman, every other community gets uplifted as well. Because a Black woman is at the very bottom of global acceptance, right? So for me, I don't see it as like, why would you see the work that I'm doing diminishing your work when, when we level up, you automatically level up. There is no leveling down once a black woman gets levels up or love, you know, or attempts to level mm. up a community. So I think for me, I probably say that's probably the more hurtful <laughs> kind of pushback. Um, cause there's this right. sense of, okay, now I have to, diminish myself or us as a group we have to diminish ourselves and make ourselves small for you to feel comfortable in this space um the other types of pushback in terms of commentary is you know we've had discussions where we've talked about our struggle where we've talked about different things right at the beginning of the year in february we had a panel discussion where we talked about microaggressions where we talked about the different challenges in in the the Black community and what it's like being a Black woman in the workplace and even in our personal lives, et cetera, et cetera. And then down the line, there was kind of other discussions and not with our group, but just with others. And one of the first things that someone said was that they did not want to make that discussion be a negative discussion that they wanted to just talk about like the positive things mm-hmm. in, in the group. Um And for me, I also kind of took that personally as well because it's a, why did you have to say that? Right. It was kind of like, well, right. Like it just felt very mm-hmm. like an underhanded attack on the work that we were also doing because In, in a lot of our historically community, historically excluded communities, those stories we have to tell are the painful ones because that's, unless we heal those pains, we cannot then turn around and talk about a lot of the, the, you know, the, the black, like I can talk about black, black excellence all day, right? I can talk about all of the amazing things Mm -hmm. that black people have contributed to society. But I can't just talk about that and sweep all of the bad stuff under the rug, right? But then, but then in in some of those other presentations, it felt right. a little bit like an attack in the sense of, don't worry, we're not going to do what they did, and talk about the challenges. We're just going to talk no. about the fluff, that kind of thing. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that, right. that for me right. is is a little bit of a no. is a little bit of a challenge. And also too, just in terms of um, involvement of senior leadership. Right. Where it's, you know, in a lot Mm -hmm. of these groups, it is the junior level to mid-level talent that is very active in these groups. Um, And the commitment of senior leadership in terms of everyone wants to say that they're committed and want to participate at the upfront. But then when you ask them for something, then there's delays or they're too busy to do it or they just haven't had the time or you get in months later when it is no longer effective. Right. So. Um, those I would say are like ongoing right. challenges and not just in this particular workplace, but I think in most workplaces that I've, that right. I hear.
0: Right. Yeah. Some of those definitely sound, you know, familiar from at least past experiences. And I would say too, it's like, um, with Canadian culture, um, I think we like to, I think we do the best PR for inclusiveness and multicultural, mosaic society, all the buzzwords. But we don't actually like to do the work. And when I say do the work, I mean, we're good at like making these programs. Mm -hmm. I don't know how effective they are or not. But in terms of we don't like difficult conversations.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We don't like that. We like to stay away from it. And the thing is, I get it. It kind of goes on to the brand of how, you know, Canadians are very nice. But then I I came on Instagram or social media. I saw the difference between nice and kind. Nice Mm -hmm. is just saying what people want to hear, right? That's the performative behavior. Kind is telling the truth, but, like, it's honest. But at least you can kind of move on from there or grow from there. And I feel like Canadian culture, we we get in this thing where we don't want to At least publicly, you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But the thing is, how do you get, move the goal? How do you get to the next step without doing that, without being honest, without, you know, someone being upset or, you know what I mean? Like we have to be comfortable having those uncomfortable conversations. And I just don't think that is truly at the core of the Canadian fabric to have those uncomfortable conversations. And I will say, based on my experience, not to say that I, I want to praise the U S for that, but I think they do a much better job, at least mm-hmm. opening the can of worms. However it happens from there is a different story, but like they'll go there. They'll broach that subject, that topic where Canadians, we, we tend to kind of, mm. we stay away or kind of tap dance way around yeah. it And to your point. Um, how do we make this more positive, right? Yeah. Let's not focus yeah, on that. Yeah, and
1: it goes part. back to like the privilege piece too, right? So it almost feels as if that's what Canada leans on is the but you're in Canada, you should feel privileged. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's like, well, you know, for right. for a lot of folks, they left their country thinking that Canada would be wonderful, right? The Canada you see on TV is fantastic. Right. And then they come here and they, they don't realize that it's more challenging for people of color to get a mortgage. The stress test is an even bigger stress test for for people, um, mm. for for people of color getting a job. You have to go through hoops to get a job right like the code switching is unreal right like more people of color should get jobs just based off of how quickly their mental works to code switch right like there's a level of Mm. of you know just how quickly we have to jump in and out of who we are authentically just to survive in canada Mm. right and and um you know, so I think for me, that's kind of where some of that Canadian misconception comes from is like, well, you're in Canada, just be, just be grateful, just be grateful. And it's like, well, like, am I right. happy being in Canada? Sure, I'm happy being in Canada, but I also have this, this thing that's constantly like stabbing me superficially on the side constantly, all day, every day. So I'm supposed right. to be happy that but, right, that's kind of like, you know, how can you say that I have privilege when I have to think about the countries that I have to visit, right? Like, my Canadian passport is not the holy right. grail of passports, right? Like, I'm still a Black person holding a Canadian passport, and I will still feel uncomfortable going to certain places. Right, Like, you can't tell me that I'm a privileged Canadian if getting out of my Audi, I still get called the N-word, right like how how am i privileged i've worked so hard in my life to try to get to where i am and i still feel like it's not good enough because some rooms that i am in still make me feel like shit so how can you call that privilege right and i think that's kind of where canada um hides hides behind um a a lot
0: yeah i get what you mean i think also you know, just to share like a another perspective of it. When someone says, "You know, you're privileged in Canada," again, the mental gymnastic side of me goes, "Well, yeah, I understand what you mean." Like, I live in a first world country. I can walk because I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, she grew up, born and raised in New York, but she's you know Jamaican, and so she had a uh, received a job opportunity to, to work within government in Jamaica, right? And then she she said she only lasted two months because she said, oh, Corey, like, I went to the bus stop, I had to wait. The bus didn't come on time. (laughs) And it's like my Starbucks. So I I get what people are saying on a superficial level, right? It There is a, a certain privilege that you get from living here in terms of access and how the water and stuff like that. Like, even when I went back home, it's just a reminder to me like how things are are different but to your point i think you're saying on a personal level you know we don't get things are still very much different um and i think we're very good at masking it enough where it's not super obvious and it might not seem super pervasive it's kind of like you know you said death of a thousand cuts right it's kind of like these slow incremental subtle things that you'll experience and sometimes it's so muddied and coded yeah y- you might not even catch it and then sometimes it there's no intention behind it but because you've experienced it so much in the past now you could be misinterpreting a situation that yeah. <laughs> you know that's another one right like they're like oh so i, I, I not like you know what i mean and that's kind of like the mental gymnastics sometimes you could be overreading a situation which is like that's ta- like that's oh, taxing in, its, in itself 100%, 100%. taxing 100%. in itself yeah um um lastly my my last like kind of major question for you is here you know you started out as a talent acquisition lead at Toys R Us um now you're the VP of global talent acquisition at Edelman one of the world's most prominent PR firms, if you could attribute one to three things that contributed to your rise to success, yeah. what would they be? Um,
1: so the the first thing would definitely be my belief in myself. Um, you know, my belief in mm. myself is absolutely unwavering. There is nothing anyone can tell me about myself that will make me change course and people have tried and I've stayed the course. Um
0: mm. I'm gonna say something triggering. You have that like that Kanye West <laughs> you know, must believe. You got that. <laughs> that, that
1: like, <laughs> not the delusion type of belief. <laughs> not, the, not the full delusion, but in the, the sense anything. of like I um you know I I have a, I have a very clear direction in terms of where I want to go. So, so my career path has been very deliberate and very specific in terms of I wanted to spend my twenties, um, working in as many different types of industries in the TA space as possible to build my toolkit and then going to my thirties with very direct intentions of where I was working and who I was going to be partnering with and wanting to get to a certain level by the time mm-hmm. I, you know, I hit 40. So my goal was always be in a VP global role by the time I'm 40. Right. And just kind of doing the steps before. Mm-hmm. So believing and knowing that I can achieve that has been very helpful in that sense, because if I didn't have such a strong belief in who I am and what I wanted to achieve, all of these voices would have gotten to me. And I think I would still kind of be in the same position that I was in like six years ago. Um, so I think for me, it's like, you just, wow. you just have to have that, that, that center, like people talk and it goes in one ear and out the other like if there's stuff of value, I'll keep it. Right. But for a lot of it, it's kind of that, right? Cuz in my twenties, yeah. it was like, "Flora, well, why are you changing jobs every year, or Flora? Why are you this, or Flora? Why are you, you know, pushing back on something?" And it was like, "No, because this is what I believe in, and I will not waver in that." And you know, the first job that I had, I was making under $30,000 a year. And then I jumped to my next job, and my next job I had 60,000. So it's, so if I had listened to those people mm-hmm. in that 12 month period, I would not have had a $30,000 salary increase. Right. So it's like, so for me, that's kind of where that kind of mm-hmm. comes in where it's like, I I know the direction I want to go. I know what I want to do and no one is going to change that course. Now, if I win the lotto, that's a totally different story. I'm going to disappear. in the- <laughs> right. But if the world <laughs> is kind of where my, right. where I'm staying, I have a very clear path. Um, the second thing I would say is considering the source. So it's kind of a continuation of this one, right? And so the second thing was one of one of my mentors had told me, "Flora, consider the source. When people are telling you something, always consider the source and always think about the intention behind what that person is saying." So that has definitely saved me from a lot of different situations where um and even per- personally as well where you when you tell someone good news or when you tell someone about a challenge, their reaction is always very telling. And when I was younger, I, I would have a harder time kind of deciphering what that, what that would look like professionally and personally. Um, And now right. I would say over the last couple of years, I have a very clear understanding of what that looks like. Um, So considering the source, um, You know, really kind of keeps me grounded in terms of, you know, what is that person? What is that person's advice or what is that person's commentary on what I'm doing? What's actually behind that? Right. Because sometimes, yeah, go
0: ahead. And and that's a, yeah, sorry, go ahead. That's a key, that's a key one because sometimes we project our fears onto when people come to us for advice or whatever, or even when people willingly just offer their advice or perspective, they project their own fears or traumas. And sometimes exactly. they, they're not even conscious of the fact that they're doing that. Right. So I, I, I totally agree yeah. with you on that that, that it, second one. You
1: know, it, it can, it can really get people out of a lot of unnecessary situations. Once you, once you've pieced that and you understand that. Um And then the third thing I think, mm-hmm that's helped me personally is having a corporate sponsor. So having someone internally who Mm. was talking in rooms that I wasn't in, in a positive way and making suggestions of, Hey, I know Flora. I know what she can deliver. I think that she would be good for X, Y, Z, or when it came to, you know, promotion time or when it came that having a corporate sponsor um, has helped tremendously, um, you know, I've been lucky enough in the last, right. um, you know, it, with my last two organizations, um, the one prior to this one, I had one corporate sponsor. Um, when she left the company, I was torn up cause I was like, my sponsor just left. Like, what am I gonna, what am I gonna do? Mm. Um, and then I left shortly after cause things were just not wonderful. Um, but she put my name in conversations that, had it not been her, my name wouldn't have been in those conversations. And then same thing in my, in my current organizations here, here, you know, I've been lucky enough to have two sponsors or people that I consider sponsors. So the, the boss that I had when I started and then my current boss as well, um, are like my, my corporate sponsors. They're my champions. I know that they have my, my back. Um, you know, and, and, and I know that they've put my name in positive light in conversations that, May or may not have, right. you know, where there wasn't necessarily a need to do it, but they did. And it's opened up a, a lot of doors, um, for me internally here at my, cor- uh, at my uh, organization. So I would definitely say if someone can find a corporate sponsor, that is absolutely, uh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would just add a fourth one as well, um, is to mm-hmm. be protective of your mental health, like being protective of my mental health, particularly in the last three years has really elevated my career in ways that I don't think would have happened had I not been fiercely protective of my mental health. Um, and I think it's really, really important for mm-hmm. that. And I haven't experienced the same level of burnout that I had in the past because of me protecting, protecting that, protecting myself and my mental health.
0: And how do you do that personally? Like what are some of the things you do to protect Um, your mental health? Some
1: people consider it extreme, but I have like a zero tolerance (laughs) kind of policy where as soon as I feel like you are not happy for me about something, goodbye. Like I'll block you, delete you. Mm. I'll open up Facebook just to block you and then deactivate my Facebook. Like I really take it to, to that level. Um, As soon as I feel like the conversations I have with you are just not beneficial or I feel like it's not growing me in any type of way, I have to be able to protect that. As soon as I feel like the conversation is more, if I call you to vent about something or to vent about something and within the first 30 seconds, we are now talking about you. I know exactly where to put you, right? Like I put you in that box because you are not a safe, space for me to go to when i need to talk about something um and before i would try to just Mm. be like okay but can we just go back right like i would say that but now i'm like okay i just sit back close my mouth i put you in that box and i will never call you again to vent about something because i know exactly what that's gonna what that's gonna kind of be like and then in the corporate space i'm very protective in the sense of i speak up more right like as soon as i see something i'll call Mm -hmm. you out on it right there and there i'll try to figure out a way to be sensitive to your feelings but then as soon as i feel like you're trying to gaslight me about something then i'll just stop the conversation right like as soon as i get a whiff of you trying to Mm -hmm. gaslight me about how someone at the organization is feeling i'm no longer going to consider you um As someone that I want to work with. And I'm very clear in that, right? Like people will know, people will know who I like and who I'm just a colleague with, just based off of my my interactions with them. Mm -hmm. And that's really important for me because doing that mental gymnastics that we've talked about in the last hour, it's exhausting. It's so exhausting. So for me to protect myself, I have to surround myself with people who get it. And if you don't get it, I'm going to put you outside of that circle. And if even in the limited interactions that I have with you, I feel like you still don't get it, then I'm going to push you even further. And I'm going to make sure that my limited interactions with you are even more limited, if not completely completely kind of cut off. Right. And, and in my personal life, I, I kind of do the same thing. There's, you know, a group of people that I no longer speak to and I'm completely comfortable in no longer speaking to them with, because I know that my mental health is better for it. Um, You know, and I can walk past these people on the street right. and act like I've never even seen them. Like they just don't even register to me. Um Is it harsh? Sure but my mental health is more important than mm. someone's feelings
0: <laughs> right so right right so you you're good at setting boundaries and there's something you said earlier in your first point you said you, you have like unwavering belief and so to so the person that naturally doesn't have that like how, is there a way to build that level of belief, do you think, or are you just that type of person? Um, yeah, no, I would
1: if you were to ask my mom, she would definitely let you know that I've, <laughs> I've always had it, that I kind of, you know, like, <laughs> I came out, I came out of the womb with a hard head. <laughs> um, but for someone who yeah. naturally doesn't have it, I think just, just maybe like building, having a plan, even having like a couple of bullet points of what you, what you want to, Do Mm -hmm. and then just trying to work backwards and just thinking, okay, so if this is what I want to be doing in five years, you know, what checkpoints can I put in to make that happen? Mm -hmm. Um, and I know it sounds very old school, but just having like a Mm -hmm. piece of paper on the wall and just having, having some notes of what that, of what Mm -hmm. that looks like can be really, really helpful. Um, and you don't have to know right. all of the answers, right? Because it doesn't have to be a linear journey to get to point A. You can zigzag, loop around, u turn, et cetera, to get to point A. But as long as you have it written down, that point A is your first destination. I think that that is really, really helpful. Um, You know, and I think too, like just building your tribe if you can, right? So when I say like building your tribe is mm. – um, you know, if you don't have that sense of belief, look at the people who are around you. You know, do they feed you or do they siphon energy for you? Right? Because sometimes if you don't have that sense of belief, there's someone in there in your group that is siphoning energy. Right? And just kind of taking a look at right. your tribe and, and making right. changes within that, um, that can help naturally kind of shift shift things along. Right. Um, right. So having that tribe, I mean, there's, there's a ton of podcasts, there's a ton of books, there's a ton of articles and different things out there that will, that kind of will help focus the mind a little bit. You know, I think kind of spending a little bit of time, five minutes a day or whatever it is on that is really helpful, but definitely looking Mm -hmm. at the tribe, looking at the people around you is probably step one. Um, because your tribe kind of depends, uh, determines where you end up in a lot of ways. Right, like you can be that person who right. has people around who are okay with the status quo, and you and you are just kind of you know that go 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 person. But if you're having trouble pushing yourself, you may want to either insert or remove someone um, as the as the first step.
0: Right? No, I, I love that. I I usually say if if people want to make a, a drastic change in their life, there's kind of three things they can do, and I think you just hit on on most of them there, and that's. One, I think a very simple change they can do to increase their belief is changing the way they dress. There's something to say with clothes and confidence and how you, how you feel. I'm a big advocate of, you know, you, you talk about mental health and I think sometimes we think of mental health exclusively as just doing therapy or seeing a psychologist when it also involves just being active, right? I think it's mm-hmm. it's all interconnected, right? So whether that's going to the gym or playing, you said, you know, you're an athlete um, doing something physical, I think, has uh, a huge effect on on your mind. For me, it's like gym is my sanctuary, It's where I, I let go of all my negative en- energy and tension and, and frustrations. And then, in addition to that, you talked about your tribe. You know, hang. If you're not that confident person naturally, hanging around people that are confident, you know, by way of osmosis, you'll you'll catch a lot of that, right? And being around people, if you're not a big thinker. And you start hanging around people that are big thinkers, a lot of that will start to to gravitate uh towards 100%. uh you as well now flora um I always end my podcast with like mm-hmm. a couple rapid fire questions just where yeah. I shoot you a random question, give me your first answer off the top of your head. So my first one to you is and these are all meant to be kind of light most of the times um what do you believe is your superpower Ooh,
1: intuition
0: hmm I love that. Uh, do you agree with the following statement? Culture beats strategy.
1: Ooh, ooh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't seem I don't, so confident. I feel, I feel like both kind of, depending on what lens you have, like both kind of feed hand in hand, feed into each other. Um, mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of like the what came first, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> That's what I feel like that question is. So I think, yeah. yes, culture. Culture? Yeah. Yes.
0: Short answer. Yes. <laughs> when here's the other one, when organizations just group everyone under BIPOC, what are your, what's your that energy? Yes. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and my last one here, what's a quote or a mantra that you love?
1: I would probably say, and this applies to my personal life and professional life, um, when people show you who they are, believe them. That for me has been mm, classic, has been a massive, massive, massive life lesson. <laughs> um, because it's, yeah, right. It, it impacts you and, and it kind of covers a lot of the things that I talked about, right? Because it, um, you know, it, it has implications on your mental life, mm-hmm. your tribe, considering the source, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, when people show you who they are, you just, you just, you just have to believe it, right? Like when tell, someone shows you that they're an asshole, mm-hmm. believe it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Believe it. There's no, why, why put yourself in a position to try to educate not necessarily educate that person or change that person if they've shown you that at the core of who they are, they're an asshole.
0: Right, right. No, I love it. I love it. Wise words. So, Flora, um, before we go, if anyone wants to connect with you, they want you to speak at you know their conference or at their institution uh what would be the best way for them um yeah uh, just to find you?
1: me on linkedin flora yeka y e k a um my inbox gets pretty busy but i will always try to find a way during the week to kind of get through it um i'd probably say that that is the number one place um to connect with me
0: awesome and guys as you as my listeners know i always like to end each episode by saying this if you just want to impress someone Talk about your accolades, the shiny objects you have in your household, your wins, your successes, yada, yada, yada. But if you really want to have an impact on someone else's life, talk about those down periods, those failures, those rough patches, those moments that really tried and test you. And more importantly, the lessons that you learned from those experiences. That's how you really move the needle and have impact in someone else's life. So with that being said, Flora and myself are out Remember to check us out on the Alive Podcast Network. Peace and love. Until the next time.